from the rugged desert outside Yuma, Arizona, this is Outpost Outspoken. Outpost Outspoken is the official podcast of U.S. Army Yuma Proving Ground, which conducts natural environment testing of military equipment in Arizona, Alaska, and the tropics. Hello, I'm Mark Schauer. Logistics is where the rubber meets the road for YPG's test mission on behalf of the warfighter. And logistics manager Jonna Pittman has more than four decades of experience in this critical field. We spoke with her about logistics at the Army's busiest test center and how it helped her contribute to recovery efforts in Manhattan in the immediate aftermath of the September 11th attacks. And I'm thinking about not just the day-to-day mission, which is very significant, but in recent years we hosted Project Convergence 20, Project Convergence 21. Project Convergence 21 was the largest capabilities demonstration in the Army of the preceding 15 years, epicenter of which was right here. So what all did you have to do in your team to pull that off logistically? Uh, We spent a lot of time trying to determine what was going to come in and how, who it was going to be addressed to, so to speak. Um, we did a lot of coordination with the FOB and trying to make sure that you know we had the sustainment annex to the op order in place ahead of time so that people didn't have to make a lot of corrections on the fly. We learned from previous exercises to get the sustainment operations Um, information out early so that we didn't have to do a lot of corrections on the fly and that resulted in having all of the equipment show up at the right place at the right time um, assisting the soldiers who came in to do the PC-21 and then getting them out of YPG that was probably even the biggest logistical thing because you know there was a lot of moving parts a lot of equipment that had to leave Soldiers who had to get flights out of here, you know, they couldn't be here when the trucks came to to pick up their equipment. So it was just uh, a lot of moving logistics. And, uh, you know, our traffic manager, he took on the onus of most of that. But he was assisted by everybody in the S-4, from the property book officer to the fleet manager, the equipment manager, our equipment pool personnel, everybody chipped in and made that happen. We're talking about ground transports of soldiers and equipment. We had a lot of commercial vehicles showing up to pick up military vehicles and, and, well, to drop them off and then to pick them up and get them out of here. And even in YPG's day-to-day mission, I mean, over the course of a year, we must be talking about thousands of deliveries of equipment that come in here. Oh, sure, yeah. And we we try to manage as much as possible the stuff that the PMs are bringing in for testing. Um, we have to keep track of that to make sure that they also take their stuff with them when they go. And just in the normal state of affairs, not even ca- talking about project convergence, a lot of these tests are on a very tight time schedule. And you play a critical role in making sure that they can get here on the ground and execute the test when they need to do it. I don't want to take anything away from the test officers because they're they're the ones who who coordinate all of that and get all of that moving. Uh, We we do ensure that equipment gets here and gets where it's supposed to be 
when they need it to be there. Uh, the S4 is responsible for the equipment pool, so we're also responsible for power generation downrange. Um, that is probably the biggest factor right now in, in what the test officers see out of the S4 is do I have enough power to do my test? And if I don't, who am I going to go talk to? And it's our, our heavy equipment drivers and our power generation guys. We're talking about taking power generators out to extremely remote places out on the ranges. Yes, sometimes it's two to three hours away. And if it's not there when they need it, that's a wasted trip for all of the test people. And it could be a wasted trip for our driver when he shows up and there's nobody there. You know? You've worked in logistics here for the last 16 years. And for three decades prior to that when you were in uniform. Yes. I mean, when you first enlisted in the Army, was that which, how you saw your career developing? No. When I first came in, I was a um, radio teletype operator, and it was right after the uh, 1976 Olympics. And, of course, you know, my recruiter, he was like, oh, yeah, you need to be a radio teletype operator because you could be in the basement of, of an Olympic center typing out those messages that go across the world and tell everybody who won the gold medal. And, of course, I was smitten with that great idea. And, you know, I, I went to my basic training at Fort Jackson, and then I went to Fort Gordon for AIT, and they put me in a, I don't know, four-by-four, four, what they call a rat rig, a radio teletype rig, and it was itty-bitty small little box and no air conditioning. And I was thinking to myself, what did I sign up for? But, you know, that, that, was, that was pretty fun. I enjoyed it. I did that for about five years, and then I just slowly started taking on more supply aspects because there's a, a certain amount of supplying of everything that people have to do. And I, I was more drawn to the supply sergeant property management type of field, and that's just where I started growing towards. When 9-11 happened, it changed everything for all Americans. You got a closer look than most people did. Yeah, I was the G4 sergeant major at uh, the 353rd Civil Affairs Command on Staten Island, and uh, we were there when it happened we we being my uh, one of my supply guys, he was a, a, one of my G4 sergeants, and I and our uh, one of our intelligence captains, and we went down to the area. They called it the pile, and we got there, and we, you know we saw this huge mass of steel that is just just seeing it firsthand. It. You just—I'm still at a loss for words to describe the magnitude of what we saw, and the amount of destruction. And we were kind of standing around, trying to figure out, well, how how do we even begin to get organized here? And uh, one of my one of my guys was like, well, let's go over here. This guy said we could get hard hats over here, and we walked over to what used to be a Burger King. And they had all of these uh, relief supplies that people had had turned in or you know donated for for the cause. And uh, I thought to myself, well, we can't help pull apart steel 
you know, we, we, we could certainly work on the bucket line and, and do that, but I think I'm better, my talent is better for organizing this huge mess of stuff that people donated uh, for the effort. And, you know, some of that stuff was, you know, like dog food for the canines they were using and socks and, and T-shirts and hats and, you know, I mean, just, and when you talk about socks, you're talking about, big, huge, black garbage bags full of socks, something that you just don't really need in that area. So, you know, he and I, Sergeant Gomez, he and I organized all of that and got it straightened out to where we can put, you know, the batteries here and the flashlights there and the hard hats there. And, you know, as people came in and they needed equipment and things like that, I was able to help my whole way. Do you get a sense of satisfaction from serving the warfighter continuously as a civilian now? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Even though, you know, it's just logistics, uh, it's still nothing really happens unless you have equipment that's operational, unless you have these power generation sets, which somebody has to buy, unless you have the fuel that's available for them to go out and drive around the range or fill up these these power generator sets or or any of the other equipment so yes we still you know we're, we may not be at the tip of the spear but we are certainly the sharp edge of it john pittman thanks so much for coming by today <laughs> well thank you appreciate it Welcome back to Outpost Outspoken. I'm your host for this segment, Anna Henderson. As I've mentioned before, U.S. Army Yuma Proving Grounds workforce is highly skilled and passionate about their work testing equipment for the warfighter. Many of those employees also have unique skills, talents, and hobbies outside of work. Today, Eric Alcala joins us to talk about his hobby as a stop-motion creator. Welcome, Eric. Can you explain what a stop-motion creator is? Well, sure. What a stop motion creator does is create a movie using stop motion. And that is a series of pictures joined together in order to to make characters move. A lot of times it's compared to claymation, where the Nightmare Before Christmas, where, you know, the characters move slowly and you can tell that, that it's a fluid motion, but it's really taking hundreds and thousands of pictures, joining them together and making it flow. That sounds like something that requires a lot of patience. Tell me about that. Hundreds of pictures for how long of a well, segment? For example, like if you're shooting 12 frames per second, it means you need 12 pictures per second. So for one minute of video, you're going to need like over 740 pictures, right? That can take a while and a lot of patience. Also, between every picture, you're trying to, to move your characters. What I do is I have a, a Lego stop motion YouTube channel where my kid and I started it, where we take our Legos and we slowly move them little by little and take pictures after every time we move them. Are they moving like their hand or are they moving like in location? You know, like how big is the move or how small is the move? It can be a big move. Uh, it can be a small move. Uh, normally, you're you're rotating their head so they can look around or you're rotating their arms and legs when they're walking. Little motions require a lot of pictures. So for example, if you want a character to move from one place to another, you just need to take maybe 50 pictures for just a little motion, right? The good thing about that is you can go back to the previous picture and see where you were at and, and continue the motion. However, 
sometimes you knock the the character over or whatever oh, no. and you have to place them back in the same position where it was before. So anyway, it can be real stressful sometimes. And when I was doing it, I was doing it with uh, my young son and he, you know, tends to knock things over and, and it took a lot of patience to to get that. Explain to me how you got started in this and how long you've been doing it. In my family, we have millions of Legos and my kid, one time he saw this app on the phone. So basically it's an app that lets you take pictures and it would join the pictures automatically. So you could see your results right away. So so we would uh, start taking pictures of our Legos and move them a little bit. And he got super excited. He's like, let's make a movie. So <laughs> uh, I think the first a movie we made was Ghostbusters. Like we have all four Ghostbuster characters and, and we made them fight a ghost or something. I, I can't oh, remember. Oh, cool. Yeah. And how old was he at the time? He would have been about 10, 10 years old at that time. And his younger brother also got in on the fun. And um, my wife also did some of the voiceovers. So yeah, it was a it was a good family activity to do. And that's why we kept doing it. That sounds like a lot of fun. It also reminds me of, I don't know if you ever did this as a kid, when you get a book and then you write like a little stick figure on the corner exactly. and then you do it. So it's like that, but in a digital form. It, yeah, a little bit. And, and you know, you flip the book and it moves little by little. That's that's exactly what it is. Just pictures instead. So what's the longest video you've created? So because it takes such a long time, I think five minutes is our longest video. Just because of how many pictures it takes and, and the the sheer volume of, of work that gets involved in editing and all that. So what is the kind of feedback you hear from your followers? Because this is on YouTube, and so everybody has a, an opinion <laughs> on YouTube. Well, um, we're not a very big YouTube channel. Like, I, I think it's just my son's friends, and it, I think we have like 40-some followers. But it, mostly it's been like, oh, that's awesome. That's so cool. Some of our, our biggest videos are, I got a Three Amigos video that for some reason got over a 1,000 likes or views, I should say. And yeah, I don't know why that one in particular got super popular, but the Ghostbusters one were really popular too. So I guess people just searching for that on YouTube and they land on my channel and they watch it. Well, very cool. It's exciting to hear about that. I'll have to check it out. Now let's talk about your day job. You've worked at YPG since 2010. Yes. You're currently a test officer with the Munitions and Weapons Division, but you've held other positions. Tell me a little bit about your career here. Well, sure. Yeah, I've uh, I actually started in conditioning chambers. So I did that for a couple of years. And then I did a stint as a data collector for a little while, uh, supporting the JLTV program. And then I came back to conditioning chambers where I was a few more years there before I transitioned to the ammo plant, also under conditioning chambers. But I worked at the old plant, if anybody knows where that's at. That experience and plus going to school, I eventually transitioned to being a test officer for munitions and weapons. So it's been a good ride. Congratulations on your big move to being a test officer. That's exciting. And really, thank you for all the work that you do here at YPG supporting the warfighter. Uh, You're very welcome. Thank you so much for having me. This has been Outpost Outspoken. Thank you again for listening. We'll see you next time from the Army's busiest test center.